We're going to be Genesis chapter 49. And uh, we will end up finishing, uh, if the Lord allows it, finishing uh, our series in Genesis this morning, uh, reading chapters 49 and 50. Uh, We're just going to read 49 right now and then uh, in a little while, or maybe quite a while from now, depending on how the Spirit moves. It's not me. All right. Uh, We'll read chapter 50 also. But if you would get to Genesis chapter 49... Now, I'm going to give a super brief, uh, compact kind of summary of where we've been so far in Genesis, and it's not going to, if you've, if you've missed the whole thing, then there's no way I can possibly uh, tell you everything that you've missed. Uh, but here we go. God created everything. He put people in the world. People really messed up God's creation by sinning and inviting sin into the world, which fractured the creation in a way that was displeasing to God and brought distance between God and his creation because he's holy and perfect and can only be in fellowship with holy, perfect things. This sin that marred humanity and marred creation brought not only a fracturing to ourselves and the creation, but a fracture in our relationship with God. But God, being who God is, being a God of grace and of mercy and of holiness, had a plan to redeem humanity, to redeem creation, and heal us. And the way he brought that plan about begins here in Genesis. Genesis means beginnings. This is the book of beginnings. This is how it all began. And uh, typically when we think about Genesis being a book of beginnings, we're thinking about God creating, right? The beginning of everything. But it's not only the beginning of creation or the beginning of humanity or the beginning of sin. It's also God beginning his plan of redemption, his plan of healing, And the way he began that plan was creating a distinct family line through whom the redemption would come. And that was the family line of Abraham, of his son Isaac, and his son Jacob, later renamed by God Israel, by whom the nation of Israel is named. Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Israel had 12 sons. One of them was Joseph. Joseph was mistreated by his older brothers. They were jealous of him because he was favored by his father. Sold him into slavery. He ends up in Egypt. He's imprisoned in Egypt. He's falsely accused in Egypt. Uh, He is enslaved in Egypt. And yet God's favor was upon him to accomplish God's plans. This is the beginning of God bringing about his plans. And Joseph was spiritual enough and mature enough in the Lord to recognize that it was God working out a plan, not just meaningless suffering that he was experiencing. And so later when he uh, had his brothers coming to him for food in Egypt because he had been exalted to a place of high authority to the second place in Egypt with only Pharaoh in authority over him, because of God's favor on him, 
Joseph there, face to face with his brothers, forgives them and tells them, don't be angry with yourselves. It was not you who brought me here. It was God. He was able to interpret all of his suffering, all those decades of pain and isolation in a foreign land, able to interpret that through the sovereign care of God, the love of God, the will of God, and to continue being useful to God as God begins to establish his plans of salvation. So now Joseph, being gracious and forgiving towards his brothers, towards his family, has invited them all here to live with him in Egypt where they can survive this great famine that lasted for seven years. Jacob, his father, Israel, is very old now. His eyesight is growing dim. His body is growing weak. But his heart is still full in the Lord. And he's become a humbled, sensitive man of God who can see now his own mortality and is trusting in the Lord that God's plans will transcend his own life and reach into the future to be accomplished. He's called Joseph uh, and his sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, close to him, and he's pronounced blessings over Joseph's two boys. And now, beginning in chapter 49, he is going to hear in the last days of his life, he's going to pronounce blessings on his other sons, including Joseph. So let's start reading in the beginning of chapter 49, and we're going to read the entire chapter, and then we're going to stop and pray for some help. Genesis chapter 49, starting in verse 1. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob, listen to Israel your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the firstfruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence, because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O oh, my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it's fierce, and their wrath, for it's cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Judah, your brothers, shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples." Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vestures in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Zebulun shall dwell at the shore of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships and his borders shall be at Sidon. Issachar is a strong donkey crouching between the sheepfolds. He saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant, so he bowed his shoulder to bear, and he became a servant at forced labor. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. 
Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backward. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. Raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. Asher's food shall be rich, and he shall yield royal delicacies. Naphtali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful dawns, fawns. Joseph is a fruitful bow, a fruitful bow by a spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely. Yet his bow remains unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. By the God of your father, who will help you, by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breasts of the womb, blessings of, the fa- of your Father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who was set apart from his brothers. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf, in the morning devouring the prey, and at evening dividing the spoil. All these are the twelve tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. Then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field at Machpelah, to the east of Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were brought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your presence here with us by your Holy Spirit. Thank you that you are for us. That from the very beginning, you've been for us. Thank you for these things that you accomplished, these things that you spoke, these promises that you made. To us, it seems like ancient history, but to you, it's like yesterday. Lord, please use your words. Please wield your words with power this morning in our hearts to transform us, to make us more like Jesus, to deepen our faith in him, to increase our hope in him our passion for your name, our enjoyment of your glory. Lord, please accomplish your will in us and through us. Please do mighty works among us this morning through the ministry of your word. We trust you for this. We need you for this. We call on you for this. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So, Jacob blesses his sons. Uh, 
as he's blessing his sons, you may notice that some of these blessings feel more like curses. Did you feel that? They don't feel like these glorious kind of pronouncements of what we would call blessings. Some of these things feel like curses. The truth is Jacob is not simply pronouncing his desires over his sons. He is actually declaring prophetic truth from God about the 12 tribes of Israel. Not just about their individual lives, their temporary time on earth, but what will become of their peoples, their tribes, the nations that arise from these men. He's declaring prophetic truth from God. So as we read these things, you have to understand when he speaks to Reuben, he's not just speaking about Reuben, but about all the people who would come from Reuben's family line. Not just about Simeon and Levi and Judah, not just Zebulun, Issachar, Dan, Asher, Naphtali, Joseph, Benjamin. He's actually speaking about the people who will come from these people. All of the nation of Israel which, with each of their tribes. And we can look forward through Exodus, through Joshua, through the Judges, through the Chronicles, through the books of the Kings, and we can see how these things came to pass, that God's prophetic words through Jacob to his sons actually came to be. These blessings were fulfilled. But two of the blessings stand out among the rest. I, I don't know if you noticed as we were reading, but there's a, sig a significant portion of what Jacob says that's devoted to Judah and Joseph above the rest of the brothers. Out of the 25 verses speaking directly to his 12 sons, 10 of the verses are devoted just to Judah and Joseph. Nearly half of the words that he spoke to just two of his 12 sons. We would expect old father Jacob here to devote a little more time to Joseph, his favorite son, who suffered so much to have the family saved there from starvation. Always his favorite, kind of the apple of his eye, his pride. You would expect him to spend more time on Joseph and to give these kind of soaring blessings to him, which they really were, weren't they? Talks about blessings being heaped on him. The blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who was set apart from his brothers. You expect this for Joseph. But for Judah, it's a little bit surprising to the reader. It's not expected in the flow of the text the way Joseph's blessings are. You, you see it coming with Joseph. You don't see it coming with Judah. So it feels a little bit more random to the reader, but there's great purpose there. Why does it feel random though? Why does it kind of catch us off guard or seem out of place or unexpected? Well, Judah is not exactly a shining figure so far in Genesis, is he? So far he hasn't been this great example of righteousness, about of faithfulness, the way Joseph has been. When you read Joseph's life, it's almost intimidating, it's almost discouraging. He's just so faithful, so devout, so diligent. 
the way he looks to God, the way he ascribes glory to God, goodness to God in the midst of all of his suffering. It's like he never had moments where he doubted God's presence with him. But Judah, not the case. He tried to have sex with a prostitute and accidentally ended up having sex with his daughter-in-law. Right? He was complicit in the selling off of Joseph into slavery. Not great examples of faithfulness, not only not to God, but even to his own family. People he could look in the face he was unfaithful to. But, if you read Judah's life carefully, you also see that he had been humbled by his failures more than some of the other brothers. And this way, he was a little bit set apart from the text. We see in chapter 38, we remember the whole account of Judah and Tamar when he failed sexually with her, that he came to humble repentance. The scriptures say that he realized and he declared when he was confronted with his sin toward her, he said, she is more righteous than I. She's more righteous than I. This cast-off prostitute daughter-in-law, she was more righteous than he was in his own eyes. That's real humility. And it said after that time, he didn't lay with her again. He repented of his sin. We see in chapter 44 that Judah pleaded with Joseph to allow him to remain captive in Egypt in place of his younger brother, Benjamin. You remember Joseph, unrecognized by his brothers at that point, was saying, Benjamin has to stay here, you go get the father. And Judah pulled him to the side and he said, look, if I don't go home with Benjamin, the old man will die of grief. Let me stay in his place. That's a real Christ-like act of self-sacrifice for the good of his family. Putting himself in that place of captivity, in a foreign place, with uncertainty that his family might ever return for him. He sacrificed himself. He had become a humble servant to his family. Now that doesn't mean that he was this Joseph figure or a Christ figure, but it does show that he had been humbled. And I think that humility, after some examination, seeing what God was doing in his life, I think that shows us that there was a work being done by the Lord to prepare Judah for this blessing that he received. Let's read it together again, starting in verse 8 of chapter 49. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Now he's moved on to Judah here because he's the next oldest behind Reuben, Simeon, and Levi. Reuben had gone up and actually committed adultery with one of Jacob's servant wives. Not the best way to get ahead in the family, but it was his idea at the time. And because of that, he was called by Jacob unstable as water. You're not going to have the preeminence of the firstborn. Reuben, in his disappointment, would have stepped to the side. Simeon now is thinking, ooh, ha, ha. All right, my chance to shine. But he lumps Simeon and Levi together. You remember that Simeon and Levi, after their sister Dinah was raped, went into the village and killed every single man with the sword. Murderous rampage. Jacob remembered it. 
It brought shame. It brought trouble on his old head. He lumps them together. He says, no, you're not going to be the ones either. In fact, in days to come, you're going to be divided. And sure enough, they were. Simeon's tribe, the land that they were given, was in a place that was kind of on the outskirts. And then Levi, rather than land as an inheritance, was given the priesthood. They had no land. They were scattered all throughout Israel so that Simeon and Levi and their descendants couldn't gather together anymore to do violence and destruction. These things came to pass, and now so Jacob looks to Judah. Something that they maybe were not expecting. He goes beyond just, you will have the blessing of the firstborn, or you will have preeminence. Instead, he says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. The people coming from your brothers will praise people from you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. This is royal language. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse Judah? Talk about preeminence, about authority. All the others would be subjected to him and he would have victory in battle. In fact, speaking of victory, speaking of royalty, verse 10, he says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. Not only just a, a time of royalty, of preeminence, but he will always have someone on the throne. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vestures in blood of grapes. This is about the victory, the spoils. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. This five-verse blessing given to Judah transcends everything else that's said to the other brothers. There are eternal things happening here. Things that I, I think they probably struggled to understand at the time. Things that go beyond their lives things that go beyond Israel. This is what all of Genesis has been building up to, a focusing of the promise given to Abraham. Remember that God promised to Abraham and to Isaac his son, not only that they would be given the land of Canaan, but that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through their descendants. All the nations. That doesn't just mean political states with borders. It means peoples. It means ethno-linguistic groups, tribes. All the peoples of the earth would be blessed through their descendants. This promise, we're reminded of it in verse 10. To him, to Judah, to the tribe of Judah, the descendants of Judah, shall be the obedience of all the peoples. Peoples, not all the people, not all the individuals, but all the nations, all the tribes, all the families. 
of the earth. Let me remind you of them. Genesis chapter 18, verses 17 through 19. It's okay, I'll I'll give you time to flip back. I think it'd be good, a good exercise for you to flip back and see it. Genesis chapter 18. I don't hear any of those thin pages turning right now. There's a distinct sound from up here when I know you're getting after it. Genesis chapter, there it is, Genesis chapter 18. You're like, why? It's going to be on the screen. All right, Genesis chapter 18, verses 17 through 19. Speak, there it is, brother. We got, a, we got an eager brother on the first row. Genesis chapter 18, verses 17 through 19, speaking to Abraham here. Then the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. All the nations on earth will be blessed through him. That's quoting God. Now flip a little bit forward to Genesis chapter 22. God's going to remind Abraham of the promise, starting in verse 17. I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. All nations on earth will be blessed. Now flip a few more chapters to Genesis chapter 26. This is in reference to Isaac here. Isaac, the son of Abraham, the promise continuing through the family of Abraham. Genesis 26, starting in the first verse. Now there was a famine in the land besides the previous famine in Abraham's time. And Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines, in Gerar. The Lord appeared to Isaac and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land where I tell you to live. Stay in this land for a while, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and your descendants I will give all these lands and will confirm the oath I swore to your father Abraham. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and will give them all these lands. And through your offspring all nations on earth will be blessed because Abraham obeyed me and did everything I required of him, keeping my commands, my decrees, and my instructions." All nations on earth will be blessed. Now, the thing that we have to come to grips with here, the thing that we have to step back and try to understand is what it means for all the nations, all the peoples, all the families of the earth to be blessed. What does that mean, blessed? Most of the time in the Old Testament, the blessings that people were seeking from God were favor in the form of power, of wealth, of authority, of independence. Israel was always seeking its independence as a nation. They didn't want to be scattered. They didn't want to be ruled over. They wanted to have a king, and they wanted to be independent. But there's a different kind of blessing that from the very beginning... In Genesis, God was seeking to give to His people, not something earthly, not something temporal, but something that is spiritual and is eternal. 
This is how God was seeking to bless them. Even when they didn't understand it, God was always seeking to bless them in this way. And this is the blessing that God was seeking to give to the nations through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, their descendants. And we're understanding now from chapter 49 that it was not just all the descendants of Jacob that this blessing would come through. It was particularly through Judah. Now we see as we read the scriptures, when we look at Judah's line, we can see some kind of fulfillment, some incomplete, some partial fulfillment, because there was a descendant of Judah who was put on a throne. His name was David. And there were some great promises made to David that even a descendant of his would be on the throne forever. You can see that language that was spoken to David's forefathers, even to Judah. You can see it being spoken to David. But as David said, he didn't live forever. As Peter said, as he was preaching on the day of Pentecost to thousands of Jews gathered together, these great promises of eternal reign spoken to David, but you can go visit David's tomb. David died. So who were these promises really looking forward to? A descendant of David who would sit on a throne. It's true, through Judah's tribe came King David who ruled over a great empire for the Lord's glory and brought this partial fulfillment of these promises, but it was a later descendant of Judah's tribe that would bring the complete fulfillment. Now, I want to read this again, this blessing It was spoken by Jacob to Judah. And I'm asking you to join with me in reading this blessing with your minds, with your hearts pointing forward through time. Not seeing these things just spoken to individuals, spoken about these individuals, but spoken about their descendants, looking to the future, looking to a better fulfillment. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Look forward Through time, Jesus born in Bethlehem. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Jesus walking out of an empty tomb. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. The elders bowing before the throne of Jesus. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you've gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, as a lioness. Who dares rouse this descendant of Judah? The lion. He's fierce, he's overcoming, he has no enemy who can stand against him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, until everything he deserves, everything he's worthy of is laid at his feet. He will rule. And to him shall be the obedience 
of the peoples, every nation blessed, every knee bowing, every tongue confessing, lordship, glory, worthiness, power, dominion, In Galatians, Paul is thinking of all these things. He's reminding the church in Galatia about the promises made to Abraham and about their real, eternal fulfillment, that it's not just about a nation residing in a promised land. It's about a people called after Jesus' name, living as His people, as His kingdom, And as his heart is swelling, as his desire for them to believe and turn to Christ and trust only in him and not look to obedience to the law for their righteousness, but look to the obedience of Christ imputed to them, credited to them them by faith. He says in chapter 3 of his letter, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the Gospel beforehand to Abraham. Preached the Gospel. These things that we've just read, Genesis 18, Genesis 22, Genesis 26, these are not just promises, these vague kind of things that they were looking to, shadows, hoping to see fulfilled someday. This was God preaching Christ. Preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then there's this inextricable tie between the promises, the gospel preached to Abraham, and the nations being blessed through him. It's because of the gospel, because of what Christ accomplished, the descendant of Judah on the throne, that all the nations would be blessed. This is biblical theology. This is not theories. This is not ideas. This is not a person trying to connect dots. The Apostle Paul, carried along by the Spirit, connected these things for us. They're plain. This is plain biblical doctrine. He says in verse 9 of chapter 3, So then those who are of faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. So the question to the answer, what does it mean for the nations to be blessed? What is the fulfillment of this promise to Judah? The obedience of the peoples, nations blessed. It is to have faith in Christ. This brings the blessing. This makes you a partaker of the blessing given to Judah. All of these things, this crescendo of glory, of of blessing, of prophecy made in Genesis, what it's all been building to, is all wrapped up in Christ. But again, we don't have to guess at those things. We don't have to wonder about these things. We don't have to try to connect gray dots The Bible tells us exactly what's going to happen. Exactly. 
We don't have to worry or doubt or, or have meetings of conjecture where we try to piece together stories. All we have to do is look at what God's already told us. Because God didn't just in the beginning make promises, God also came in the flesh and He fulfilled those promises. But God didn't just come in the flesh, Christ on earth, living this perfect life of righteousness in our place because we never could. He didn't just come and die on a cross in our place where we should have, conquering sin, taking on all of the wrath of God towards us sinners, dying a real death, being punished in our place. He didn't only walk out of His grave resurrected, truly, physically, spiritually alive on the third day after His crucifixion. We don't only look to these things to see the fulfillment of what God began. God also allows us to see into the future. Not just the future from when Jesus lived, the future from where we live. As a point of reference, even from where we are, we can look into the future and we can see fulfillment of promises made. I mean, ultimate fulfillment. The kind of fulfillment that if you believe what it says to you, you will have no doubt, no fear. You will have no worrying, no anxiety about the future, about your life, about what this has all been about, about where you'll be and how life will feel. Is God for me? Does God have good plans for me? Does my life matter? Seeking God, is it all worth it? I'm telling you, listen, if you believe what God has told us, there's no more fear. The answers to these questions, just as they always have been, are all wrapped up in Christ. Now, will you look with me into the future to see how God will fulfill these things, the things spoken to Judah, things that we would hope in, that our hearts could rest in, that we could take joy in and comfort in. I don't mean happiness and moments of comfort. I mean the soul level kind of comfort where no matter what this life, this earth, your own sin, the sin of others, the scars, the wounds of this life, no matter what it throws at you, you will have joy. Will you look with me into the future and find the answers for all of your longing, all of your need Turn to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5. We have the Apostle John. After a long life as an old man, he's been called by Christ. He's followed Christ as a disciple. He watched Jesus crucified. He ate breakfast with Jesus on a beach after the crucifixion. With the risen, glorious Savior in His glorified body, He stood there and received commands from Christ to go and make disciples of all nations. And He watched Jesus ascend, hidden by a cloud, recalling the words of Daniel that this 
One would come, one like a son of man, riding on a cloud, presented to the Ancient of Days, sitting at the right hand of God, the conquering King. John knew Jesus. John's hope, all of his longing, all of his purpose was all found in Christ. And John was given a vision. Jesus came to him and he said, let me tell you about the things that are going to come, the things that are going to come. John saw these things unfolding in heaven, this heavenly scene. And at a point, in anticipation, chapter 5 happens as John is writing down what he sees. Then I saw, in the right hand of him who is seated on the throne, God, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures, and among the elders I saw a lamb standing, as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll. And to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. Then I looked. And I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. 
praise the God of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He sent Him to die for our sins, to raise for our justification, to sit enthroned on high at the right hand of God. There is no one who can subject Him. There is no one who can overthrow Him. He is a lion. He is a victor. He cannot be beaten. And He's a lamb slain, his blood spilt, pouring down the cross into the dust of the earth. The blood that should have been ours. Our king, our lion, our lamb will be enthroned in all majesty, in all glory. There is no doubt. God has told us these things from the beginning to the end, it is Jesus, our Christ, who reigns. It's always been so. It has always been so. And it will always be so. And we, we are those who are called to trust in Him and enjoy His reign and His glory forever. To enjoy Him. To enjoy Him. We don't have to help Him. Does that sound like someone who needs your help? He wants you. He calls you. He loves you but He does not need you. Enjoy Him. Follow Him. Trust Him. As we've journeyed through the book of Genesis, this is what it's all been building to. Promises made. Promises kept. Promises foretold. Promises fulfilled. You wonder why the book of Genesis is preserved for us. It's so that we wouldn't just see a man showing up at a point in history claiming to be something. We would see God showing up, fulfilling His own promises because He is a faithful God. He is a sovereign, eternal God. His plans were established before a human being existed. And when all of his people are gathered around him, enthroned in eternity, beyond sin, beyond brokenness, beyond failure, beyond fear, we will all know that it was always Jesus. So the call now here in this life, as it was for Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Judah, as it was for Joseph and all the other brothers, as it was for Israel wandering in the desert, as it was for King David, as it was for the prophets longing for God to come and ransom them, redeem them from sin. It is the same for us.
It is those who are of faith who are blessed along with Abraham. Those who are of faith. Faith is not something in the Bible that's just a category for us. This is what it all comes down to. Faith in Christ. Now, if I was to urge you to have faith in me, living a life of uncertainty and fear and doubt makes a lot of sense. If it's about faith in your own ability to bring yourself to God justifiable, then it makes a lot of sense to live a life of worry and fear. But if you're called to a life of faith in the one who will always reign, it makes no sense to live a life of fear, of doubt, of worry. It makes sense to live a life of enjoyment, of peace, of love. So that's the call. The call of Genesis, believe God. It will be counted to you as righteousness. It will become the source of all your joy, all your peace, all your satisfaction to know and follow the God who is real. And to see him in Christ. The image of the invisible God. This leads us to this point in the book of Genesis where we see what it's all been about. We have our hearts pointed forward to the future for this descendant of Judah who would conquer, who would reign, the Lion of Judah whose scepter would never depart from him, the ruler's staff from between his feet, until all are bowed, all are confessing his lordship, the obedience of the peoples, the nations, the families of the earth. And now in chapter 50, the reader is drawn into the further narrative looking toward Exodus. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, for that's how many were required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, if now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I am about to die. In my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan, there shall you bury me. Now therefore let me please go up and bury my father, then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, Go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. 
When they came to the threshing floor at, of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation. And he made a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, This is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore, the place was named Abel Mizraim. It is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he commanded them, for his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah, to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess a burying place. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive, as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years, and Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old, they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Let's pray.